So welcome to our penultimate Lazy Leads. Uh, I'm Emily Glassford. I'm a first year detail industry working on xenophobia in London and at the English court in the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, so tonight our topic is material culture and we will be discussing the power of the image. Our alumnus is Robert Kerr, who is uh, a former executive at Burberry. Our fellow in archaeology, Dr. Joshua Thomas, and our student at the MCR is, in, is Sarah Bakikia doing an MST in modern history, specifically early modern England, which, as we know, is a wonderful concentration. Uh, so the, uh, the way that the evening will go is that we will have 15 minutes for each presenter to discuss their topic, give their presentation. Um, and then after all three of them, there will be a five-minute opportunity for them to discuss the presentations amongst themselves. So, we will be going in chronological order of talk. So we'll start with Dr. Joshua Thomas, who was a DPhil student in classical archaeology at Lincoln from 2013 to 2016, uh, completing a thesis on art and natural science in the Hellenistic world. He has since taken up the post of Lavery Shuffrey Early Career Fellow in Roman Art Archaeology at Lincoln, and he's begun the process of converting his thesis into a monograph alongside other research projects. He is involved in the NYU-led excavation and research project at Ephrodisius, a Greek city of the Roman period in southwest Turkey. Today, he will be talking about a few ancient works of art that help to demonstrate the importance of context when diagnosing the power of a particular image. Thank you, uh, Emily, for your very kind introduction. Uh, and thank you to, to Heather for inviting us to speak to you all this evening. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to see so many of you here. Um, a little bit of a surprise as well, but um, I hope we'll have some, some interesting things to say. Um, so I'm sure it won't have escaped most of your um, attention, but the theme for our panel this evening, uh, the power of the image, um, is really quite a broad one. Um, I know that this is something that stems from trying to bring together a classical archaeologist, um, an art historian, and a fashion executive. Um, but actually, as soon as the theme was suggested, um, it really had quite an immediate resonance for me as a classical archaeologist, um, because it brought to mind uh, a really seminal book in our field. Um, and this is a book that was written by a, a German scholar named Paul Zanker um, in the 1980s, uh, which is entitled The Power of Images in the Age of Augustus. Um, and I'm sure you'll be glad to know it. it's, it's uh, available for you to consult in your, in your wonderful college library. Um, <laughs> now, for, for any of you who, who might not know, um, Augustus emerged as the first emperor of Rome um, in 31 BC, um, following several decades of really quite bloody civil war. Um, and during his reign, Augustus undertook a really quite um, extraordinary program of political transformation, um, and of moral and religious renewal in Rome, uh, which coincided with a period of, of really quite remarkable peace and prosperity in the Roman Empire. So in this uh, really quite game-changing book, um, Paul Zanker undertakes um, a really uh, wide-reaching and stimulating reassessment of all of the material and visual culture of Augustan Rome. Um, and he argues that the reign of Augustus saw the uh, creation of a new visual language, um, and that this visual language um, both reflected the nature of the extraordinary changes that were taking place in contemporary society, um, but it also served as an active agent for this change. 
Um, so to give you a, a, a little idea of, of what this means, um, I hope you can see on the screen, uh, we have a, a really famous example of Augustan art. Um, so at the top of the screen you can see um, two sections of a marble frieze um, that decorated an altar that was dedicated to Augustus by the Senate uh, of Rome towards the end of the first century BC. Um, and the frieze depicts a really quite um, solemn looking religious procession. Um, anyway, there's a, there's a depiction of Augustus himself, the emperor. Um, he's dressed up like a priest. He has his toga pulled up over the back of his head. Um, and he's surrounded by another large group of priests and of lictors. Uh, now on the right-hand side of the screen, uh, you can see uh, another section of this procession. Um, and it has a whole series of members of Augustus's imperial family. Now in this particular case, uh, the iconography of the frieze was uh, really carefully calculated um, to carry a, a variety of, of really interesting messages. So uh, it communicates the, the piety of Augustus, uh, Augustus himself, um, the importance that was attached to the priesthoods during his reign, uh, the importance that was attached to the worship of the tra traditional gods during his reign, um, and also the significance of the well-being of the imperial family, um, and probably also the idea that he would one day be succeeded as emperor uh, by one of his imperial heirs. Uh, now this book is, is packed with lots of other really interesting and exciting case studies, um, maybe not judging by some of your faces, but, um, <laughs> but for me the, the key point that really emerges um, is the importance of considering the precise conditions in which an image was conceived uh, when attempting to diagnose its power. Um, so to begin with this evening I'd like to show you um, a couple of images actually, uh, one ancient and the other modern. Uh, which perhaps show us the dangers of what can happen if we fail to follow this kind of procedure. Um, so on the left of the screen you can see a, a very famous photograph that was uh, taken in Times Square in New York City um, on the uh, 14th of August 1945. Um, now this is a day that's known as VJ Day, uh, the day on which Japan surrendered at the end of World War II, um, effectively bringing the war to a close. Um, and as you can see, it uh, depicts a soldier, or a sailor I should say, uh, kissing a nurse really very passionately, so it seems. Um, and I think for many people it's become a, a very well-known cultural icon, um, and it, for many people it kind of conjures up the idea of a reunited couple who are um, locked in a, a passionate embrace following a, a period of, of real turbulence in world history. Um, now, on the right-hand side of the screen is a fragment of Roman relief sculpture, um, which we can date with some confidence to the Antonine period, so um, around about the middle of the 2nd century AD. Um, and this is a representation of a very famous episode from Greek mythology, um, in which Hades, the god of the underworld, abducts the young virgin Persephone um, and carries her back to the underworld to be his bride, uh, much to the despair of uh, Persephone's mother Demeter. Um, so here we see the, the bearded, muscular Hades um, carrying off Persephone. Um, and I think her kind of sense of uh, desperation is really underlined by her uh, flailing limbs and uh, the very extreme angle at which her, her neck is arching backward. And I think for us this appears right away as a, as a very high-pitched representation of um, sexually charged violence, which we immediately perceive as being in some way shocking or upsetting. But actually, in both of these cases, it's remarkable just how far our appreciation of the images is, uh, is, is adjusted with a, a proper appreciation of context. 
Um, so in the case of our photograph from, from Times Square, um, some of you might already know this, but the um, sailor and nurse in the photograph had actually never met each other prior to the photograph being taken. In fact, the sailor, who was a, a man named George Mendonca, um, admitted to being really very drunk at the time the photo was taken, um, and whilst the, the, the nurse, who was a, a lady named uh, Rita Friedman, um, painted a really quite stark picture of the incident in, uh, in an interview that she gave in 2005. Uh, and she said, uh, and I quote, I felt that he was very strong. He was just holding me tight. I'm not sure about the kiss. It was just somebody celebrating. It wasn't a romantic event. Now, I think armed with these pieces of knowledge, uh, the picture no longer really appears to us as a, a romantic cultural icon. Uh, I think it's transformed into something which is altogether a little bit more concerning. Um, now, in the case of our fragment of Roman relief sculpture, um, a really important piece of contextual information is that it originally decorated a sarcophagus. Uh, so that's a kind of uh, marble coffin that would have been used to house the remains of, of one or more dead people <coughs> during antiquity. Um, now, actually, the abduction of Persephone and a, a whole range of other um, very dramatic uh, Euripidean Greek myths became extremely popular for the decoration of sarcophagi in the second century AD. Uh, and actually, far from being um, shocking or upsetting, um, these images were actually designed to provide help for the bereaved following the death of a loved one. So, in this particular instance, um, the moment of loss, which is encapsulated by the abduction of Persephone, uh, it's, it's probably intended to um, communicate, uh, well, serve as a, as a very elegant and um, elevated allegory for the death of a young person before their time, uh, and it's probably intended to have a soothing or a consoling effect for those people who are mourning in the context of the tomb chamber. Uh, the comparison of these images is really quite a, an anachronistic one. Um, what I hope to communicate is that a really important part of what we do as classical archaeologists is trying to make some sense of the wider social, political, uh, historical and cultural context in which an image was conceived. Um, so what I'd like to do for the rest of my talk this evening um, is just to show you two further works of art which are associated with some emperors who came after Augustus um, and whose power only really becomes apparent with a proper understanding of their contexts. Um, so the first of these is, um, is, is another representation of a uh, famous episode of Greek mythology. Um, this is an octagonal mosaic medallion um, which depicts the Greek hero Odysseus on the left um, handing a cup of wine to the seated Cyclops Polyphemus on the right. Um, now, some of you will already know, this is um, an episode in Greek mythology which is first communicated to us in Homer's Odyssey, um, in which Odysseus um, and his companion, uh, companions have been taken captive by, uh, by the Cyclops, um, before Odysseus himself um, devises a really ingenious plan to ensure their liberation. Um, and essentially this plan involves plying the Cyclops with different quantities of wine which um, are usually reserved for your, your MCR dinners um, and before sort of driving a, a burning stake through his one eye um, in order to avoid detection whilst escaping earlier on. Um, now in this particular case, um, uh, we actually happen to know quite a lot about the original spatial context of this mosaic. It originally um, was set some 10 metres off the ground in the ceiling vaults of a large room um, that formed part of a lavish palatial complex that was constructed by the Emperor Nero in Rome, uh, which is known as his Golden House. Um, now, the ancient literary sources tell us an awful lot about this um, Golden House, and they describe it in, in really extravagant terms. 
Um, and they take it to be a, a sort of a paradigm of the kind of um, moral decadence and luxurious excess um, that characterized Nero's reign. Um, so to put it another way, the ancient sources trace a direct connection between the character of Nero on the one hand uh, and the character of the palace that he built on the other. And actually several modern scholars have taken this as their lead and have tried to interpret this mosaic medallion in a very similar way. Um, so we happen to know, again from the ancient text, that Nero had a, a great interest in Greek mythology um, and that he was also very interested in the theatre. And so um, in this context, some scholars have argued that the choice of this mythological mosaic reflects Nero's own tastes and uh, sort of cultural orientation. Um, but again, this, this conclusion really highlights the dangers of viewing an ancient image through too narrow a lens. Um, in actual fact, the mosaic is only one of five examples we have of representations of this myth surviving from, uh, from villas that once belonged to Roman emperors. Um, so on the screen you can see four other examples. Um, uh, one on the left, in the top left-hand corner, you can see shows the actual blinding of Polyphemus, and that's from the villa of um, Tiberius at Spolonga, uh, and that's dating to, to, to before Nero's reign. Um, and then the, the two examples on the right are both fragments of other groups which once depicted this same myth, uh, belonging uh, to villas that, that belonged to the emperor uh, Domitian, um, and then later to the, the emperor Hadrian. Now actually viewed in tandem with these other representations of the Cyclops myth, um, I think we can seriously question the extent to which this mosaic is a reflection of Nero's cultural orientations and love of Greek mythology. Rather, it seems much more likely that it was chosen because it was a subject that had um, already developed a, a particular resonance in imperial contexts, um, and really which helps to define the um, elevated and sophisticated nature of imperial domestic space, all the way from the reign of the Emperor Tiberius um, in the early first century AD um, until the reign of the Emperor Hadrian, um, well over 100 years later. Um, and mention of the Emperor Hadrian uh, brings us to another really textbook case of the importance of context uh, when assessing a nature work of art. Uh, and this is the, the portraiture of the, of the Emperor Hadrian himself. Um, now, Hadrian's portraits constitute something of a, a watershed in the history of imperial portraiture um, because, unlike the majority of his predecessors, um, he was depicted wearing a short beard. Um, now, we actually have one ancient text which, which uh, discusses the matter of Hadrian's beard. And it simply tells us that um, Hadrian stopped shaving because he wanted to cover up his, uh, his spotty complexion, uh, which is uh, something with which I, I sympathise, actually. Um, uh, but uh, many modern commentators haven't actually been satisfied by this explanation. Um, and, and they've uh, instead chosen to see um, Hadrian's beard as a reflection of his very well-attested love of the Greek East and of Greek culture. Um, so according to this reading, um, Hadrian's beard was modelled on the beards of the great philosophers of the Greek past, uh, men like um, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Uh, but again, this, this kind of biographically charged interpretation of Hadrian's beard really um, ignores the wider context of Roman aristocratic portraiture prior to Hadrian's reign. So actually, if we look back to our friend Nero um, a couple of generations earlier, you can see that in some of his later portraits, um, he's got this very sort of fashionable chin strap beard, uh, which is sort of, uh, I think he's, he's grown out to sort of 
cover up his, his rather enormous double chin. Um, likewise, the, the Emperor Titus on some of his numismatic portraits had a beard. Um, and if we look carefully enough at the reliefs which spiral Trajan's column in Rome, um, again we see a, a large number of um, young soldiers and lictors wearing, wearing a beard of a very comparable kind. Um, so viewed in this context, I think um, Hadrian's beard seems much less like a, a programmatic statement of his personal affinity with the Greek East, um, and much more like a, a particularly well-documented example of a, a broader trend of personal styling um, that had taken root amongst the um, fashionable cosmopolitan youth of Rome um, for, a, for a number of generations. Um, so to put this more simply, Nero's beard was, was probably just a, a fashion choice, um, and I think this is something that us millennials probably shouldn't find particularly surprising. Um, and I just want to draw your attention very, very briefly to a, to, to a wonderful Guardian article that some of my friends uh, sent to me a few years ago uh, when I grew up something resembling a, a beard, and uh, it reliably informed me that it was neither fashionable um, nor, nor attractive. Um, so to, to very briefly conclude, um, this evening I hope to demonstrated that it's only with a really rigorous understanding of context that we can diagnose the power of an ancient image. Um, and I think that a, a really obvious point, but one that is, is probably worth making nonetheless, um, is that the same is true of modern images as well. Um, so I'd like to just leave you with this uh, conspectus of images that were awarded prizes at the World Press Photography Competition earlier this month. Um, now obviously some of these images are um, evocative and emotive in their own right, uh, but actually I think it's only when we're able to read the captions of these images um, and get some sense of their context um, that we're able to gauge their significance with any degree of specificity. Thanks very much. So thank you very much for that discussion of how we should take the context into account when assessing images and their impact, and also the cautionary tale about facial hair. Um, so next up will be Sarah Bacchicchio, who graduated from Brown University last May with her bachelor's with a thesis on the clothing choice of Queen Elizabeth I. She is now an MST student in British and European history at Lincoln, looking at uh, invocations of Elizabeth I by the late Stuart Queens, Mary II, and Queen Anne. Uh, outside of history, she is interested in fashion and arts journalism, and unsurprisingly writes often about women, fashion, power, and identity. All themes we will hear about now. <laughs> talking about what I think is an exceedingly relevant topic, the power and the power of image, the clothing choices of Queen Elizabeth I, and how they function politically. I studied the subject by looking at clothing in three different capacities, as objects exchanged between leaders and subjects, as representations in portraiture, and as political information described by ambassadors in their memoirs and letters back to their nations. Today I'm going to try and walk you through that chronologically, and in doing so argue that Elizabeth's use of clothing was a direct result of a supposedly illegitimate claim she had to the throne. And because of the power of image, Elizabeth was able to overcome what seemed like insurmountable obstacles. Before we do that, we need a bit of context. So why are we studying Elizabeth? When Elizabeth was bastardized as a child, it seemed unlikely, if not impossible, that she would ever take the throne. When in 1558, she did become queen, it was amidst this atmosphere of doubt and without any applicable models of queenship that she was able to rule successfully. 
And today, Elizabeth is the first example that most people can cite for successful women in power. She is the one that we remember, which is important given that in the early modern period, a number of women came to power in England, France, and Scotland. And each one's rise provoked questions about the legitimacy of female rule, and each one was exceptional in her own way. But Elizabeth is the one that we remember visually for her flaming hair and her weird makeup and her elaborate gowns, because Elizabeth navigated her precarious position through her self-representation, through public processions, portraiture, visual rhetoric, and dress. On all levels of society, material objects were used to assert social identity through sumptuary legislation and livery. Unlike today, clothing and ornament composed the body. They were not external additions, but elements that constituted a person. For a servant, the variety of one's livery could evidence subordination or belonging to a guild. Special garments demarcated the milestones of early modern life, such as the transition from virginity to marriage. For the monarch, it was through coronation garments, a crown, and robes that he or she could assume his or her new divine authority. Aside from this universal, universality of dress, Elizabeth's use of clothing existed within a legacy of visual Tudor propaganda. Henry VIII, for example, had used dress to sacralize secular authority when he broke with the Catholic Church. In this way, Elizabeth could draw on Tudor traditions, but she also had to do something different because of her gender. As such, she met her challenges by manipulating attire, by dressing the part and using image to promote her vision of herself and her country. And if you're wondering still why we should care, I present you with this, um, because this is a continuing and constant phenomenon. We can look at Marie Antoinette, Queen Victoria, Kate Middleton, Angela Merkel, Theresa May, and if we look at this fabulous image of Hillary Clinton, we see in one sweeping glance that throughout her political career, Hillary Clinton has mobilized an array, a veritable rainbow of pantsuits, which allowed her to humanize herself and her power dressing through her individual aesthetic. And I hope you'll be thinking about throughout the presentation. Like Elizabeth, women in power throughout history had to navigate difficult parameters of masculinity and femininity to apologize for and to proclaim their gender through the clothes that they wear. And Elizabeth is just one phenomenal example of this. So for the history part, just months before Elizabeth came to power, Scots reformer John Knox published his first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, in which he declared how odious and detestable is all such usurped authority by women. Women, with all their natural malevolency, could not legitimately seek dominion over men, and this was God's law. Even those who defended Elizabeth believed that her power should be limited. One of her supporters, for example, insisted on England's good fortune that Elizabeth could ordain nothing without Parliament. So in her earliest days, Elizabeth's greatest obstacle was the sense of illegitimacy that came to her rule. Initially, she repurposed the symbols and styles of her predecessors to reassert her position as a legitimate Tudor monarch. On the left, we have the classic image of Henry VIII. With his prominent calves, his splendid garments, he commands the body politic through his sexual and royal power. Like her father's portrait, Elizabeth is painted at a low viewpoint that leaves her literally and symbolically out of reach of the viewer. Her full skirts and white arms mirror her father's stance and stature. The colors of red and white refer to the Tudor rose. And without her own codpiece, Elizabeth instead uses the garden behind her to emphasize her fertility. Yet this is a scene of uncertainty and restraint. She's stiff, even weak, reasserting that this female monarch was not excessively strong, though she had Tudor blood. She's decidedly non-threatening. Early in her reign, Elizabeth legitimated herself through this connection to her father, this undeniable link that she was near English, and that her people shouldn't be worried about her gender. She was born to this country, and she had the right to rule. 
As Elizabeth's reign went on, she continued to use her predecessors' <coughs> legacies, but would reinterpret them in new ways. One of the ways that she asserted her domain was through the exchange of clothing both within her court and beyond. At the English court, clothes were currency. Clothing, jewels, and accessories were frequently passed as rewards and formal contracts and signs of favor. In this respect, it was one of the few forms to which the monarch and the subject could mutually construct each other's identities. And Elizabeth very much used this to her advantage. There's an absolutely incredible variety of examples of the ways in which her court used clothing to attract her favor and the ways in which Elizabeth reciprocated. But what I think is most important is the way she used clothing as a political currency that allowed her court to participate in her power and encouraged her court to invest in a political subculture focused on her body. This is particularly evident around the New Year's Gift Exchange, a yearly gift-giving holiday that dates back to the mid-13th century. When Elizabeth first took the throne, the gifts she received were not unlike those given to her father and sister. In 1562, she received a fairly ordinary 81 purses of coin and just 46 gifts related to dress. However, by the 1580s, she was given more and more elaborate embroidery and fanciful jewelry. By 1603, the final year of her reign, she was given 133 individual items of clothing, 70%, marking a nearly 300% increase throughout her rule. There was clearly something specific about Elizabeth and her leadership that made clothing such a popular choice. The thing that was specific about it was the relationship between her gifts and her iconography. Elizabeth was associated with many animals, such as the phoenix, the pelican, and the ermine. Here we have the ermine portrait with an ermine kind of on her arm. Um, and according to legend, the ermine would prefer death to soiling its snowy coat. So it's praised for its purity and chastity, not unlike the virgin queen. And in the gift rolls, there are no less than six recorded examples of ermine, including an example of a nightgown etched in fur. The same is true of other animals and icons with which Elizabeth was associated. She was given multiple objects that reference her as a sun, a rainbow, a pelican, and a phoenix. Because to receive gifts crafted in her symbolic image meant that the court valued and supported the queen's metaphors. They agreed that she was a phoenix, rising from the ashes to oversee a flourishing realm. Equally, it was a reassurance for Elizabeth for others to acknowledge her image and their hope to take part in its projection. On her end, Elizabeth frequently distributed clothes as rewards and signs of favor. When a lady-in-waiting, Lady Sydney, nursed Elizabeth through a nearly lethal bout of smallpox, Elizabeth reciprocated by giving her a pelican-shaped jewel, consisting of rubies, diamonds, and pearls. According to another legend, the pelican would wound itself to gather blood to nourish its young, when food was not available. Emblematic of self-sacrifice, the pelican was not only an appropriate symbol for Lady Sydney, but one that, as I've mentioned, Elizabeth used to define herself. In gifting the jewel, Elizabeth honored Lady Sidney and attached her to her own conception of queenship. In addition to the public nature of these rituals, Elizabeth could broadcast the expectations to the rest of the court. It was a visual representation of what an ideal lady in waiting was and how her subjects to think of her. Each exchange of clothing within the court participated in a larger interchange of power and authority, creating a realm of soft power through which Elizabeth could assert herself and her conceptualizations without overstepping the supposed parameters of her gender. Outside of her own court, Elizabeth had to craft an international reputation as well, which, like established herself at home, she couldn't always do the way her predecessors had. Military might have been a way to gain prestige and earn the goodwill of nobles. That was, of course, unfit for a woman, especially one in her position. Conceivably, she could have chosen to do something abroad with gifts of clothing, similar to what she did at home, but she actively chose not to. She was astonishingly reluctant to give clothing abroad. What she did do was establish her might and her awareness of other cultures through her portraiture, and through her dress and portraiture more specifically. 
Here you see the Armada portrait, which was painted in 1588 right after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. In the fray, the Catholic Spanish had attempted to overthrow both Elizabeth and Protestantism. In winning, Elizabeth secured England's borders, her position, and her religion throughout the realm. It was the most fantastic victory of her reign and very much one of English supremacy. So it's a little bit weird that the dress she wears is cut in an exaggeratedly non-English style. Elizabeth wears a long, narrow bodice, a large ruff, and a rolled farthingale, all in the French style. And it's not a mistake, because it's possibly the most deliberately constructed of all of Elizabeth's portraits. There are two possible ways to read this, but the most likely is that Elizabeth was staking an imperialistic claim on France. At this time, English monarchs fashioned themselves as kings and queens of England, Ireland, and France, intentionally maintaining a rhetorical claim. In 1558, just before Elizabeth's accession to the throne, Mary I had lost Calais, a crucial port city. And up until 1597, Calais is still an important discussion point for Elizabeth and the French ambassador. Thus, through dress, Elizabeth reminds her audience that she has this claim, though she can't necessarily use it. This relates to many of her other portraits as well, such as the Ditchley, in which Elizabeth models this elongated headdress and winged cloak while she stands on a globe. Every aspect physically lengthens the queen while illustrating her as an otherworldly being. This sense of reaching and extending throughout the world also appears in her rhetoric. She spoke, for example, about how she was well advertised of everything that happened in the world because her hands were naturally very long and mighty. The clothing and her portraiture, in short, allowed Elizabeth to establish that her reach was expanding. Even if it wouldn't be under her reign, Elizabeth anticipated an empire. In the last decade of her reign, Elizabeth was still using many of the same sartorial methodologies, but there was a new challenge because of her age. In 1597, the French ambassador wrote, As for her face, it is and appears to be very aged. It is long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal, compared to what they were formerly, and the left side less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. This was an issue because beauty was a cultural requirement for queens. So in the 1590s, when Elizabeth was no longer an eligible um, bachelorette and no longer beautiful, she had to fashion her clothing, her womanhood, and her image to a new purpose. One of these strategies was to appear to meet ambassadors in very informal attire. There are a few records of Elizabeth meeting with ambassadors in her nightgown, and then occasionally opening up the flaps of her dress to reveal her bosom or all the way down to her navel. It should be said that a nightgown in the 16th century was actually a loose, comfortable gown, usually worn for the privacy of the royal chambers, made of velvet or fur. But it was still really informal, especially the way she treated it since she was supposedly opening up the flaps. This frankly seems a bit odd, and Elizabeth did recognize that strangeness. At these arrangements, she was reported saying things like, What will these gentlemen say to see me so attired? I am much disturbed that they should see me in this state. But having beckoned the French ambassador at her own invitation, Elizabeth's indignation seems forced at best. Because really, it's a political move. It shows that even without all of the jewels and petticoats, Elizabeth was in the position of power. Secondly, to see a queen dressed so informally and without excessively regal dress gave a sense of intimacy and strengthened the bonds of friendship between nations. And finally, and most importantly, her clothing was a constant. While her body decayed, her clothing and jewels provided a distraction. Clothing provided stability where her humanity did not. And I've chosen this particular image of the rainbow portrait because although Elizabeth was in her late 60s when it was painted, it's just like a day past her prime. Elizabeth preserved the image of her youth and beauty through as many elements that she could. She elaborately embodied different types of bodies and women. And so from the 1550s to the very end of her reign, the narrative of Elizabeth's insecurity was played out on the body of the queen. Now just to conclude, 
Um, in the presentation, argued that it was through her clothing that Elizabeth was able to reinforce and promote her vision of herself and her country. Through image, as well as its acts of construction, she asserted her legitimacy, her focus on her subjects, and her hope for the human's future and her global awareness. She could dress the part of monarch and reinforce her role when her gender might have otherwise excluded her. She could perform the image of power in the absence of uncontested entitlement. In this way, Elizabeth reflected the relationship between women, image, and power, not only within her own period, but also throughout the centuries that followed. So instead of asking if there is a power in image, we should instead look more specifically at the way that power is uncontested and the way it plays out. And thank you for that uh, discussion on the importance of clothing and symbolism in navigating gender and power dynamics in the context of Elizabeth I's reign. Uh, so our final uh, presentation for the panel tonight will be uh, by Robert Kerr, who was a student at Lincoln from 1971 to 1975. I meant to leave that part out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look a day over 25. <laughs> <laughs> Studying modern languages, uh, specifically German and French. He spent 39 years at Burberry in senior roles, most recently as director of customer operations from 2007 to June 2016. So as you probably guessed, this is my only job. I'm going to talk to you about Burberry. Um, I'm going to take you through a hundred years of, uh, of images used by Burberry in their advertising campaigns. So I need to be swift, otherwise I get the memory on my back. <laughs> So um, we're going to start in the early 20th century, um, and, and it started with really a military focus, as we see. We'll take, it, take you through the aristocracy as represented by Lord Litchfield, and to the modern-day aristocracy as uh, represented by supermodels such as Kate Moss. I'm going to point out some key dates of the events in the history of Burberry, which hopefully you'll find interesting, and put some context around that as well. So there is the great man, Thomas Burberry. <laughs> Founded um, the company in 1856, age 21. So, a very young entrepreneur. He started in, uh, his first store was in, in Basingstoke in, in Hampshire. Uh, he did so well, he moved to uh, open his first store in 1891 in the Haymarket in London. And did even better. And by 1913, he'd opened a, a brand new um, purpose built store in the Haymarket which sadly has, has now closed, um, but it's still a fashion store, but not a Burberry store anymore. So we moved to the early 20th century, the, the 1910s. Um, as I said, it was really about military wear. Um, the image on the left is interesting because it, it features a product uh, called the tie locker, which is actually the predecessor to the famous trench coat. Now this was um, famous because it was um, it was closed, it fastened without any buttons at all. A single strap and buckle fastening, and only a button and the collar. It was painted in, in 1912, and very popular with officers. It was the same year that uh, the ill-fated Scott expedition uh, reached itself for wearing uh, Burberry clothing equipped with a Burberry tent. What I love is the advertising slogan on the ransom, which you probably can't read there. The, um, some, uh, some marketing experts came out with the, the greatest danger the soldier has to face on active service is not the poison gas and liquid fire of the enemy, but bad weather. <laughs> it is a serious foe which undermines both health and efficiency. 
As an economic of insurance against the risk, the Burberry Trench Woman is essential for every officer at home or abroad. <laughs> Very catchy. You see, in the early adver adverts, the newspaper adverts, black and white, a lot of information there, because one product, a lot of, lot of work, and you'll see that, uh, that changes. In the 1920s, we moved to France. These two ads from uh, magazines in, uh, in France, they opened, um, I say they, well, I keep saying we, but I don't work there anymore. Uh, the first store in, that was opened in Paris in 1909. These two ads are from 1925, and you can always already see them move away from the military style to more um, day wear, country wear, sports, sporty wear. Um, but yeah, lovely, lovely images, hand-drawn images, which are beautiful. I love this 1930s, very elegant, stylish ads. Uh, the, the one on the left is from the Tatler magazine, and I'll take the one, white one on the, on the right. Um, 1935, um, beautiful uh, heavy war coats. We wore one on those drafty old planes in the 1930s. Very different to these days. Moving on to the 1950s, um, we start to see some colour in the advertising. A very, very sort of posed image on the left. But the interesting, uh, again, a line drawing on the right hand side, this is from an American newspaper ad in 1959. Always a very important market for Burberry. Uh, the first store opened there in 1970. But in the small print, you put just this is the side, the prices, the cotton the cotton coat on the left is $37.50. And on the right it's $95 in the in the Wolf Aberdeen. And there's also a note that if, if the store you buy from is, is west of the Rockies, the prices would be even higher. In 1955 there was a big change in the business. Uh, the company was bought out by a company called uh, Great Universal Stores, headed by the Wilson family. Up to that point, it was still owned by the Burberry family. Founded, founded in 1900, GUS was the biggest operator of catalogue shopping, um, and it split in 2006. Two separate companies, I recognise them, Experian and Home Retail Group, Argos, which has recently been bought by Sainsbury's. Moving on to 1960, you can immediately see the style change here. Um, they brought on a famous photographer, David Bailey, to this 1969 ad campaign and uh, continued use of black and white shots, but use of male and female models this time uh, because uh, the, the business was equally focusing on men and women. 1970, here we, um, we have we've come across the Earl of Litchfield, who was, he was a famous fashion photographer in the, in the mid 70s, also a second cousin to the Queen. He brought in his own style using stately homes as backdrops and uh, typical English countryside. He also liked to have himself in the shots as well. He filmed himself quite, quite frequently. <laughs> and he acted as a model, um, in this case, <coughs> on the right-hand side, right side, Lady Anne Curzon. He was also frequently photographed with Lady Annunciata Asquith, who was the daughter of the Earl of Oxford, who features in the, the next one. Um, these images were really aimed at mainly at the American and Japanese customer. It really reinforced the tourist idea of, of Britain. And, uh, they basically continued in this main book throughout the 1980s. So the shot on the left is another Litchfield. It's quite a famous shot. Um, Lady in the Seattle is in there, but it was more of a lifestyle picture. So we're moving away from strict product focus into more of a lifestyle type of image, selling the image of Britain. So obviously another important uh, tool to the company was the use of uh, product placement in uh, famous films Crane vs. Crane by the infamous Meryl Streep, all in the news these days. 
And uh, think that also the fame of uh, Peter Sellers and the Pink Panther movies and loads and loads of other movies. So there's a lot of, a lot of product placements. And we move on to the 1999-2000, and there was a huge change at Burberry. Uh, the the, the old-fashioned uh, British senior management, not me, uh, was replaced by um, you know, a New York retailer called Rosemary Bravo, who came from Saks. And she really started to turn the company to what it's become today. She hired the first named designer called uh, the guy called Roberto Minichetti, who admittedly didn't last too long, but it did establish the Paulson brand and started showing it on runways, um, as we still do to this day. The other big change was she turned to Mario Testino to take control of photography, so moving away from <coughs> Litchfield to Testino, you know, chalk and cheese. And uh, he still continued to use hybrid models such as Stella Tennant, who's the granddaughter with him, Chief of Devonshire. But it was really the choice of, at, at the time, very shocking, surprising choice of Kate Moss. But it really kick-started the transformation of Burberry from a middle-of-the-road traditional clothing company to a fashion brand. So another uh, more testino shots, this Stella Tennant featured the one on the left. And uh, in 2001, uh, Christopher Bailey came in uh, to the company and appointed design director. He continued with Testino, but introduced new energy into the advertising campaign. And Agnes Dane um, featured in the 2000 campaign, on the 2007 campaign on the right, um, in one of the Testino's famous group shots, a lot of motion, color, energy in this. Uh, in the 2000 year, in the first decade of this, uh, the 2000, um, 2005, Burberry completed its demerger from Jewess, so it became an independent company for the, for the first time. And a year later, Rosemary Bravo left and made way for Angela Arex. 2010, we crisply find actors and famous personalities that are used along fashion models. Here, Eddie Redmayne is pretending to have fun with Cara Delevingne. <laughs> in uh, 2012, um, in 2013, Burberry brought back its beauty license and commenced direct operation of its fragrance and beauty business. Uh, but beauty becomes Burberry's fifth product division alongside men's, women's, children, accessories. And the launch of Brit Rhythm Fragrance, the same year featured British musician George Barnett. I mean, not a very famous musician, even on those new, new Puritans, uh, well done. Um, but also they used the British actress Suki Wardhouse. So it was really getting a, a younger generation of, of model interest in the, in the shoots now. 2010 saw the, uh, the biggest fragrance launch uh, to date uh, of my Burberry, and uh, Christopher decided to bring back Kate Moss and alongside Cara Levine to be the faces of my Burberry. Again, reverting to black and white shots again. Continuing with 2010, there's a lot more images then. Photographing established models alongside up and coming stars such as Kate and Cara, it was something Christopher wanted to do to, to uh, change things up a bit. And that continued with supermodel Naomi Campbell, who first, first featured in 2000. And here she's the face of 2014 campaign alongside Jordan, Jordan Dunn. Um, 2014, Angela Arendt has left to join Apple. And Christopher Bailey was appointed CEO in addition to his role as chief design officer. So a lot of things happened behind the scene which uh, impacts on, on the uh, advertising campaign. Again, use of um, musicians, 
Christopher doesn't like to have a lot of brands to the, the face of Chanel or the face of one kind. Christopher Bailey doesn't like doing that. He mixes things up. He finds the right person for the right campaign. In here, um, 2014 on the left, George Cray, fairly minor, the British musician, um, alongside Emma Watson, and unfortunately Romeo Beckham in the festive campaign for 2014. But it did, um, it did get a lot of publicity. Again, the these are all Testino pictures. Um, this was the 2015 festive camp. Um, again, taking the model, Rosie Huntington widely alongside James Bay on the left, and of course Romeo again on the right. A lot of colour, a lot of, you know, a lot of fun that has happened, and this was a very successful campaign. Social media um, is, is become huge for a lot of fashion brands, and Burberry's really led the way um, in recent years. And uh, social media has been a key strategy. Uh, and many other luxury brands are now playing catch up. In here in um, 2006, they launched, they actually filmed a photographic shoot um, and posted it live on Snapchat um, for the first time. And on the right, um, in 2016 again, Romeo's big brother Brooklyn took over temporary from Testine to shoot the campaign for another fragrance uh, launch. This is a shop of Henry's, a fashion model. It was quite controversial again, surprise with nepotism, but um, yeah, not even a great shot, but anyway, you got the gig. <laughs> and then keeping the uh, social media theme, Burberry uh, introduced a, a website called Art of the Trench in 2009. It's a dedicated website to celebrate the iconic trench coat and the people who wear it. So anyone can submit a picture of themselves wearing the, the trench coat and once it's approved it gets uploaded. So they use this tool quite often when they open a new store, for example. Here uh, was an event in uh, Seoul, in South Korea, in March 2016, and uh, a top Korean model Kim Jae-yong was photographed, and uh, his uh, the excitement about that event in, in Korea. So um, I've whisked you through um, in, within time, I hope. So uh, I hope you found a good journey in the world very interesting and little facts and figures. So thanks for your attention.
Um, and his, his portrait images remain remarkably constant throughout these, these two decades. Um, whereas we have, we have other emperors where their images is constantly updated and they, um, they look older and, uh, and, and wiser. Um, or in the case of Nero, as you saw, slightly, slightly fatter. Um, so um, there's something that, that kind of resonates with, with some ancient art as well. And arguably that's kind of true of Burberry because the, the choice of young models means that it's an ever-aging brand. Well, exactly. I mean, you, you can mix things up as we did with an older, but they still look incredibly young. And it's, it's aimed at a, a much younger customer. You, you can see just how the, the, the images have changed over, over, the, over the decades. Clearly, society's changed and as, as a younger customer. So you have to bring in the modern-day aristocracy, as I call them. You know, these are the musicians of the world, the, 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 the sons and daughters of musicians that were popular in my time. You, the, daughter, the son of Brian Ferry, you have a lot of second, third-generation people coming in now. So it, it is, and it's all, the image is all about, it's all about Christopher Bailey and, and all designers. They, can, they want to control every element of the brand through, through the power of image. Because everything is now so instant. And, and in the 70s, that ad would have stayed in the magazines for, for months. And now it's instant, changing daily. I would say the Snapchat, it's seconds. I was wondering how um, the choice is made between using a model and an actress. It's, it's whatever fits. It, it, whatever fits the campaign, um, it, it can occasionally an actress, but quite often models become famous in their own rights being models was you saw in the, some of the early there were the models brought in alongside um, Litchfield in those times they weren't names at all they were just brought in they paid their money and they and they didn't become celebrities but that's different now everyone who appears <coughs> in the fashion ad becomes a celebrity in itself it self-perpetuates now look at it's interesting with, I mean it resonates with the awareness of Queen Elizabeth of the power of, of dressing I mean, still, that's what a lot of companies try to harness now to, to sell product, and not to harness power, but to sell product. <laughs> I think they are also harnessing the, that's like more of an acknowledgement of that power, and the kind of marketing women's empowerment and marketing those things rather than actually enacting them. Um, so I think those things Elizabeth picked up on are now increasingly part of our vocabulary. Yeah, there's, there's another thing actually about Elizabeth that I, I thought was really interesting is this, um, this notion, you showed this, this fantastic <coughs> image of her wearing, um, I think you said it was a, a sort of very typically French um, yeah. costume. Um, and it just got me thinking, because uh, I'm sure that, like a lot of people in the room, my, my um, social media is, is constantly buzzing with, with the term like um, cultural appropriation about um, um, sort of taking um, fashion trends and um, uh, paraphernalia that are associated with a particular cultural background um, and then redeploying it, and, and it's something that seems to be highly contentious. Whereas here, it clearly had a, a very kind of positive and uh, politically charged meaning. Um, so I thought that was, that was yeah. really interesting. She also very often didn't to flatter other countries, so she would send portraits of her dress, like mm -hmm. of herself dressed in that nation's style, mm -hmm. and people would kind of you know, send her things back and be really flattered by it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, definitely a change there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs>